This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Splash, splash, splash. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a three-in-one formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. And its advanced beating technology keeps you seeing safely all year long. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash. Pick some up at Walmart today. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Hey, Ray. Hey, Marcus. How you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Woke up a little bit sore after a big bike ride yesterday and did what I tend to do when I wake up really sore is grab a little CBD and I'm feeling better. That's good. You know, our joints don't take exercise and extreme activities very well the older we get. And a lot of people who are younger are experiencing the same thing. That's why we're pretty excited about our sponsor, 1CBD. And a lot of people seem interested in the fact that 1CBD is consciously created. They use 100% organic sources. They employ a holistic removal of all the THC. And they select the best strains. And the strain is very important when working with controlling pain. They are also halal and kosher compliant. They are non-GMO. They are made in the USA. And we've set it up so that you can save 20% off your first order when you use the code BALANCE. I I don't know. We're we're imbalanced, but we're using the code (laughs) BALANCE, so keep that in mind. You go to onecbd.com, that's O-N-E-C-B-D.com, and they're at OneCBDLife on Twitter if you want to follow them there. CBD in all forms, liquid, gel caps, and they give you the choice. All you have to do is hit their website, OneCBD.com. It's OneCBD. Manage your pain and achieve a renewed sense of balance. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we're together on this episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll to answer what we feel are some very, very important questions in the history of rock and roll. Back to the earliest days. Uh, and uh, we're very excited about our guest here on the podcast. We today are going to be speaking with Preston Lauterbach, who is an author who has written many books over the years including an incredible book, which I'm going to read about Beale Street. I did not know that you had written that book until I started doing the yeah, research. Yeah, I saw that, too, when we were starting to do the research on you. So I want to read that, too, Marcus. So, yeah, because Beale Street sounds like in those days it was one of the most exciting and vibrant places in the world. And one of the many great people to come out of Beale Street is a blues legend named Robert Johnson. I think we are all in the rock and roll world familiar with him. Along with Preston, Anya Anderson wrote this book called Brother Robert, Growing Up with Robert Johnson. She is Robert Johnson's stepsister. 
and was able to spend many years with him and paints quite a different picture. And from what we've read, it seems like this book, in a way, is going to rewrite the blues history. Well, I, I think it will certainly add a, a personal dimension to it uh, that fans of Robert Johnson have lacked. People keep asking me, well, you know, does this book explode the mythology? And I really think that those two portraits hang side by side. You have the mythical Robert Johnson, with whom we are familiar uh, from stories primarily, you know, from his traveling buddies, Johnny Shines and Honey Boy Edwards and right. uh, admirers like Muddy Waters. And we have lacked that personal uh, family portrait of Robert Johnson. And so Mrs. Anderson has given us the family portrait and perspective on Robert Johnson. And it seems to be quite different than what we have been taught over the years. And in a way, it seems like a lot of Robert's history is very whitewashed. Well, you know, I, I keep getting back to what a, a complex individual Robert Johnson was. You know, you have to remember that he grew up with uh, several different last names. And you can only imagine what kind of an identity crisis that would cause with a person. You know, he only found out in his teenage years who his natural father was. There was always more than one Robert Johnson, even in his own mind and in his own hmm. lifetime. And so to me, the part of the reason that we have these different portraits of Robert Johnson is that in reading about him over the years, interviews with, uh, like I said, his traveling buddies and, and from books by people like Peter Goralnik and uh, Philadelphia resident Elijah Wald. I hope he doesn't mind me airing his dirty laundry on, on your program. Uh, <laughs> you realize that Robert didn't divulge his family history around his blues friends. And he didn't really go into uh, his music career with his family. And so he very deliberately kept these lives separate, you know, quiet from each other. I got three legs trunk on Four feet on block my road I'll be in the street by my rhino Babe, I'm booked and I got to go and I kind of equate it with a lot of us who have gone through a divorce. Like I grew up in a divorce family. Well, I wasn't going to yeah, go and tell my, my mom what my dad was up to, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, I, I equate it to that. You know, you have different families, and so you, you relate to them in different ways, different groups of people. I think it's actually fairly ordinary, but Robert has become such a mythical figure that even these kind of mundane family and, and firsthand perspective details are so precious because we just didn't know that they were out there. It is the imbalanced history of rock and roll ray and marcus and we're, we're talking with preston who wrote the book brother robert our sponsors as always are one cbd at one cbd.com and crooked eye brewery in the heart of hatboro at crooked we jumped right into this preston and it's such a fascinating story for all of us and you touch on things in the book that are kind of what you were talking about right there uh, about the non-traditional family ties and yeah. i think there was one of the sisters was forever changed when she found out that they weren't full sisters even though they all called each other sister yeah. and brother. The two mothers' families, the mother, uh, Robert's mother, and her mother lived near each other. They were all around each other. Everybody was good with each other there in Memphis. Yeah. The other thing that strikes me, other than, than plugging into what the vibe was in the family is, all this time when we all had Robert is just roaming, doing the walkabout, disappearing, yeah. you know, making a deal with the devil. He was on in Memphis. He was on Beale Street yeah. honing his craft with his br half-brother's son who we, right. who we would travel with and they would go uh, i learned all this in your book going to mexico and california it yeah. makes sense as to why the recording sessions that they set up were in texas because he was in transit perhaps on one of his his trips so it, it really paints a very different familial picture of the man and what his life was like in the periods that his friends like you said that he didn't share with didn't know where he was yeah exactly yeah so there there you're right about that you know in the the mythical robert johnson histories that have been out before uh, this book, you know, there are always these unexplained gaps in time. And mm -hmm. while I, I can't necessarily, you know, look at our narrative and uh, say, well, this is where he was uh, during this period or that period specifically on the calendar, you at least get an understanding of where else he did spend some of those years. And, and you're absolutely right to point out Beale Street uh, as as a proving ground for Robert Johnson and his sound. And that's that's an important part of his his musical style and, and story that there wasn't any certainty on, I think, until Mrs. Anderson came along to explain. And I followed her 
to the station With a suitcase in my hand And I followed her to the station With a suitcase in my hand uh, and, and Brother Son is a major influence on Robert Johnson's style. Mrs. Anderson has this this uh, great observation of her being a kid and then being at a party at a, a family friend's house. They used to keep the piano kind of right in the uh, in the hallway, big apartment building that a lot of people lived in. And so they'd get together and jam and, you know, have parties, uh, she says. And the grown folks would do whatever the grown folks wanted to do. But when you listen to Robert Johnson's style, one of the things that jumps out at you and I think has been really the, the signature, the, the sound that people can't wrap their heads around. You know, Keith Richards said it was it was like hearing two people play. And it's Robert's use of that walking bass simultaneously uh, with the lead string of the treble. And so Mrs. Anderson remembers Robert and son sitting at the piano together and Robert jamming on the left side uh, on the deep or the bass keys and brother son, you know, tinkling on the right side of the, of the piano, mm. uh, playing the, the lighter sounded keys, the, the leads. And I, I think that that must be an ingredient in Robert Johnson's guitar style, you know, merging that, that kind of attack, the, the bass on one end and the, uh, the lead on the other. In part of the Robert Johnson narrative that we are familiar with is that before he went on his crossroads adventure or disappeared for a year and a half to make that deal with the devil, yeah. his predecessors, his heroes all said that he was not very good and he was kind of clumsy yeah. and all of that. Do you think there's accuracy to that? Because my impression from what Anya wrote and what you wrote is that he was ahead of his time. He was trying to do new things, and he had a sound that was a modern blues sound that was completely different than what his predecessors were doing. And maybe it scared him because this young kid with long fingers was so much better than them. <laughs> that's a good point, man. Yeah, you know, that that's entirely possible. She got a mortgage on my body, not a lean on my soul But I'm going to Rodale, gonna take my rider by my side But I'm going to Rodale, gonna take my rider by my side We can steal Bell House, baby, cause it's on the riverside. You know, I think the whole deal with the devil narrative hinges on uh, the Sun House observations. Right. Uh, of Robert being bad or being unable to really play the guitar at one point and then jumping back in six months later, I think, by Sun, Sun House's uh, estimate or recollection and being, you know, the guitar god that we all pray to. <laughs> <laughs> At so, least we all are in agreement about that, and I, I can't get over how much I've learned in the last week or so reading the book to get ready to talk to you. A lot of it is a feeling. We were talking about that, Marcus, how it's really about the feeling that you get from reading these stories, how she weaves together personalities to create the vibe, and you did a great job of bringing that, that all out of Mrs. Anderson. Well, thank you. No, I, and it's interesting. The the moment that I spoke to Mrs. Anderson, and I, and I do want to make very clear to uh, everybody who's listening that, yes, this is a 94-year-old woman that we're talking about. Right. Uh, her father was born in 1866. I mean, so she has a wow. firsthand look at the entire uh, history of, of black America uh, since the end of slavery. She's an unbelievable human being. Uh, even if she didn't have a famous brother, man, I would be I would be all in with with her, whatever she wanted to do. She made the choice to write this book. This wasn't a process of me finding her and interviewing her and persuading her to be a. This is her plan, and she's not on this Zoom call because she's sheltering in place with uh, no internet connection. So. Uh, as grim as that sounds, she doesn't care. She's been through a depression and a world war, and she's strong. You know, she's good. Her voice was what just grabbed me from the moment that we started discussing doing this project. It's a sound. It is a word choice and inflection. It is a an old dated sayings, you know, 
Like her mother used to call snapping her fingers, finger popping. Yes. You know, and wouldn't, wouldn't allow finger popping in the house. Yeah, that not was, in her house, right. That was uh, heathens. Heathens allow finger popping. <laughs> I love, you know. Part of the devil's old, music. Old timey phrases, you know, yeah, that finger popping. Be careful with that. Yep. And uh, the way that I wanted to, to do the book as a glorified typist is simply to lay it out in her words. I had to kind of put it in order chronologically because, you know, she didn't necessarily tell it from beginning to end. And so that was a little bit of my labor. But I wanted people to be able to just sit with it, maybe even in one sitting, in one night, you know, with a, a glass of bourbon or uh, one of those nice beers from one of your sponsors to just immerse in her voice, in her story, in her world, you know, in her Robert Johnson. I didn't want it to be an 800-page book, you know, that people are going to kind of semi-dread. I... Really wanted that voice to be able to carry you. So I, I appreciate the fact that you enjoyed uh, that aspect of it. Did you write 800 pages worth of material and cut it down into the 180 pages? Or did you trim a lot of fat in the writing of this book? No, no, not terribly. Um, you know, Mrs. Anderson and I worked together, and our process was we would tape record her stories, transcribe mm -hmm. those, those uh, interviews, and then send them to her for her editing and, and approval and... Uh, anything she wanted to add on. So we got together where she lived a couple of times. But then uh, the real treat for me was that we got to meet in Memphis in August of 2018. She doesn't live there. She hasn't lived there since 1947. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we got the chance to meet up at the 80th anniversary of Robert Johnson's death Whoa. and to go back <sighs> to their home where they live, uh, all the places where she could remember him sitting out and picking his guitar on the railroad tracks and overlooking mm -hmm. the bayou. I'm going to write a letter Telephone every town I know I'm going to write a letter Telephone every town I know Pictures are great. Yeah, the pictures oh, are exceptional. Good. I'm really glad that, that you enjoy that. But yeah, so uh, that was a real treat for me. And so being able to be right there and hear the stories, it brought out quite a lot of uh, memories from her. Uh, and, uh, of course, to be there and see it all is very powerful. There's a couple of things that were unknown to me before I read your book. First, Mrs. Anderson said that Robert loved to play for children, that he would play nursery rhymes for the kids in the neighborhood. And I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. And she really only mentions the death of Brother Robert's child once in her book. Was that loss exaggerated in other narratives of his life? Or was it just because she wasn't really there and part of that that it wasn't bigger? No, in fact, I think that she only learned about the loss of that child many years later reading uh -huh. what other people had written. And so it was almost in reflection. That she made that same. She said, "Yeah, you know, he loved to play all of these these uh, these songs, these nursery rhymes, and for the children to dance around." And uh, she kind of added as an aside, "Of course, you know, he lost a child, and he must have been heartbroken." And so, I don't think that that was that she was aware of that when it happened. Hmm. That's a good question. I'm I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, you know, that's, <laughs> that's our that's, podcast. <laughs> Welcome to it, Preston. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that, that she brought up in addition to nursery rhymes was the, the love of Jimmy Rogers. Yes. Uh, you yeah. Know, that, that was his favorite. And to picture them hanging out, picking the guitar and yodeling uh, is awesome. Of uh -huh. course, Robert never really got to record any of that, that kind of material, but you can definitely hear the influence in some of his vocal inflections. And maybe where he was going next in his own evolution, like incorporating more of that country feel from Jimmy. Because he was, well, obviously, they made it, you make it very clear in the book how large he was for RJ. Yeah, yeah well, absolutely. And, you know, yeah, you think about, um, think about Robert Johnson's style uh, and something like rockabilly. I mean, it, it, it certainly could have happened had he had the time. He, he would have gone somewhere. 
course, uh, Bob Dylan thinks that, that Robert Johnson was so far ahead of his, his time that we still haven't caught up to him. Uh, so he might have gone to you know even further out places than we can even conceive of. Do you think that Robert Johnson was recorded under different names during his travels or even during his time in Memphis? Because you had a few African-Americans that were very wealthy and had the equipment. Look at uh, W.C. Handy and uh, people that like the guy who died in 1912 that owned all the uh, houses of ill refute. Um, oh, oh, yeah. Robert Church. Robert yeah. Church, so and and people like that that followed him up. Do you think any of them along the way may have recorded him in all those years? Ooh, boy. Now that I couldn't say. You know, there were a, a few recording sessions by like the big companies. RCA Victor comes to mind, uh, and another one, who, whoever Ralph Peer was with, would come through Memphis, and those would have been in the late twenties. And so that's where you got like Furry Lewis's early recording. I've been playing these blues for about six or some odd years. One of my old favorites. Babe, I'm going way, baby. Your crying won't make me stay. One way, baby. Crying won't make me Memphis Jug Band's recordings, right. uh, Cannon Jug Stompers. And so where Robert was at that time, I'm not a, not 100% sure. So he, he, who knows, he could have been involved with some of those sessions. There wouldn't have been any note made of it. He could have, sure, but I don't know. I hadn't come across any evidence of that. You mentioned Furry Lewis, and Big Order Horton's another one that comes up yes. in the book as a prominent friend of uh, Mr. Johnson's. There's also mention of uh, Memphis Minnie and how yeah. she may have been an accompanist on one of the songs. Now, these are names that we put in our exploration of the blues as among the progenitors of the blues and there they are around him in closer proximity than we knew from our previous look into it and at the same time also making verifiable connections especially with uh with Big Walter, who kind of ribbed Robert that he took some of his lines and put them in some of his songs and stuff like that. So they were that close. And yeah, a lot of the other stories don't really talk about him. And he was amazing. You know, for my money, Big Walter is, I, I don't know if there's a, you know, we all have our tastes with that, but I, I with harmonica, but I, the way that he, you know, blew with such feeling and emotion uh, through the, with that harmonica is, to me, he, he's the best. You know, there are many others that I love and enjoy, but to picture Big Walter, a young Big Walter, and and peak Robert Johnson playing together would have been mind blowing. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, they they did jam together, and Mrs. Anderson remembered uh, a few of the songs, and I think one of them was what ended up being a a uh, Big Walter recording you might have that information closer at hand than i do but uh memphis minnie she would have kept up fine with robert johnson if you think about it she was quite modern uh she was playing electric guitar by what 1940 as soon as they could uh, plug them in she was pretty early yeah she was right there and so uh yeah and particularly i think for a a more countryfied blues musician she was definitely looking to be more cutting edge which was certainly robert johnson's mo and i would say mrs anderson she said well when I remember Memphis Mini, I see a mouthful of gold. Oh, yeah. I remember talking about the gold teeth and how everybody had gold yeah. teeth in the book, and that was kind of a sign of status. Or Yeah, she said that she liked Brother Robert's teeth. Beautiful white teeth. What else do you need? And she also talked about what a fine dresser he was and how he was impeccably dressed a lot of the time, you know, and it's uh, part of the M.O., I guess, of being the bluesman. He held on to his guitar, and you tell a great number of stories about how he wouldn't let anyone touch it or and he would walk around memphis playing it yeah at the end of his life it gets pawned by his half-brother's son uh i think your book does a, a lot to dispel the deal with the devil nonsense 
in Robert Johnson's life. I think it's part of the legend and not really part of what I see as his true story. Now you have another kind of quest, if you will, another grail to go after the the guitar. Any word on what became of it or where it might be? Oh, man. Supposedly it was pawned on Beale Street in Memphis. And that's what you have in the book, right? Right. And so the pawn shops, you know, that are on Beale Street, they were a fixture there for a hundred plus years, but they've all closed down. And and I think that the families that owned the pawn shops uh, have all died out and gotten out of the business. And so it would be very difficult just as I'm trying to think of, well, how would you go about tracing? Verifying, yeah, yeah. There's a chance that if, you know, the old uh, pawn receipts exist in a family's archive or something, there might be something traceable there. There would be a piece of paper. The guitar, who am I to, to, to say that I know? I don't, but if it exists somewhere, it's probably not far from there. Uh, it was probably purchased, uh, again, in Memphis, and, you know, you hope that it, it did not get far away. So I, Or I damaged, hope, or yeah. damaged, you know? I hope that it still exists. I do. I hope do that it's out there it somewhere. Does? And somebody can say, oh, my gosh, you know, I, I bought this, or my daddy bought this guitar. And, and the punting took place many years after Robert's death. Mm-hmm. It was not an immediate thing at all. And so, to me, that, that gives me hope that it might you know, potentially still be out there. But to get back to your question about the, uh, or your, your observation about the, the deal with the devil, I mean, of course, you can't make a deal with the devil. So that's, that's stupid <laughs> on the face of it. <laughs> and the devil was walking side by side. Me and the devil was walking side by side. Yeah, but he didn't do anything to dispel it with songs like Hellhound on My Trail, which, by the way, your book, Marcus and I talked about this, uh, about how it really put perspective on that. Right, right, buddy? Yeah, about uh, about the uh, white the white wealthy men being on his uh, the white man being yeah. on his tail and the hellhound and I mean it makes euphemism you know for yep. the plantation boss. Yep. I think. right. I never it, realized it that. makes sense I mean, because. In a lot of Native American lore, before white man got to America, there was legend of the white devil. And I've got a few Native American friends out west who have talked about the ancient Yaqui and some of their tribes and how the white devil was always part of the devil. So it's really interesting that the hellhound is white. But but the devil is nondescript in me and the devil. So he didn't do everything he could to dispel it. And I think he might have even liked it a little bit because it kept sure. those guys from digging into what he was really all about, which was hoboing and taking trains with Son, hanging on Beale Street and being a bit of a celebrity there. I think he did contribute to his own mystique. And if you think about it, the myth is really important to uh, the success and the interest in Robert Johnson. I was speaking the other day with a, a journalist in Italy who said uh, who said that the myth is what helps create so much interest in the real person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, there's nobody out there trying to dig up Leroy Carr's long lost stepsister or Blind Blake. That's true. Or, you know, right. any of the other fantastic musicians of, of that era because they are not really mythical in stature the way that Robert Johnson is. And, I mean, look at some of his contemporaries. Charlie Patton. I mean, Patton didn't live to see uh, any interest in in the blues in the way that it it exists now. Nobody's nearly as interested in Patton as they are in, in Robert Johnson. You know, and, and it also brings to mind something that Mrs. Anderson uh, said about the crossroads, pointing out the importance of, uh, of biblical imagery to 
Robert's mind, and she said that the that they had ministers in the family who debated about the crossroads and about that symbolic place where you are in life when you decide: are you going to uh, live a virtuous way, or are you going to go the other direction? <laughs> and we've all made our choices there too. I think. <laughs> the book is Brother Robert. Uh, written by Anya C. Anderson and the man that we are talking about, Preston Lauterbach, here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. you mind if we take a little pause for the cause that refreshes? Let's do it. And Marcus, you know when I'm thirsty where I'm going to head whenever I need a frosty, cool, delicious craft beer. I'm talking about Crooked Eye Brewery. Oh, right in the heart of Hatboro, the place that is open now and able to seat people outdoors. On the freshly paved beer garden and music inside a couple nights. They're still doing the online open mic a couple nights, too. The best way to find out what's going on at Crooked Eye is to go to their social media page. Facebook, it's Crooked Eye Brewery. Easy to find. And it'll tell you how to get to their brewery right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatboro. Tell you what, I'm excited to head up to Hatboro and enjoy one of those cold pints. They have some really, really good beers, and I'm curious to see what they've been doing as far as brew making during the pandemic. Oh, Jeff's been busy, I know that, and he and Pete and Paul have been keeping the brewery going, and we're excited to see that life is starting to return to semi-normal there at Crooked Eye. Some nice cold beer right on the patio. And if you don't feel safe sitting around with everybody else enjoying the brewskis, you can always bring your growler or they'll fill your crowler or they've got 16 ounce cans already made for you and ready to go at Crooked Eye. Serving the cure for what ails you since 2014. And we thank them for their support of the podcast. We're back on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Marcus and Ray talking with Preston Latterbach about this book that he co-wrote with the half-sister of the great Robert Johnson. It's called Brother Robert, Growing Up with Robert Johnson. Well, we've dispelled a couple things. We've talked about the devil legend and all that, but there's still so much more to discuss about the man and your telling of his story. One of the many things I found very interesting in this book, Preston, was the fact that he was literate, very interested in in the Ethiopian emperor Haile Selassie and was very, very updated on world events because he and his brother son and they all would read the papers every day. And a lot of his stories and a lot of his songs came from some of the things that were happening in the papers. So do you think that it's mistaken that maybe he uh, what people maybe thought he wasn't as literate as he was? And do you feel that that has been cleared up? Well, look, uh, I don't know if you have your uh, your copy of the book at hand, but you see in there that there is a postcard. Yep. One of the great artifacts that's in Mr. Yes. Anderson's yes. collection was a postcard sent from Dallas, Texas, during the recording session that produced Hellhound on My Trail. <laughs> and you see his handwriting, you see his signature, you see that postmark in that date saying Dallas and the date of the session. I was it June 1937, I want to say, off the top of my head. So I'm, I'm going to go look, but I'll bet you that you're right. <laughs> what, what more do you need? Yeah, whether, whether the perception exists that he was illiterate or uneducated or something, which I don't think you can listen to his music and think that he's uneducated. He's clearly a brilliant writer, lyricist, mm. wordsmith, poet, and, yes, and visionary, whether he, uh, you know, learned it in, in uh, grad school, uh, or, or more likely uh, had a, a talent and a gift for it, to me matters very little because he was able to express himself in a way that nobody else ever has. Yes, I, I think that there is that sort of cliche about the blues man being illiterate, whether it's applied to Robert Johnson or, you know, just that sort of anonymous figure of the blues man uh, with his, his bottle of whiskey and his guitar slung over his back walking up the railroad track. I'm the man that rode when I see hanging on a tree. Well, they say it's an easy one, right? They, it's an easy one to cook up. But, you know, finding the truth, you guys really dug in with all of her stories. And you, you're bringing it out at a time when I think people will want to hear it. People who've been following Robert Johnson because of the 50s blues guys and then yeah. the 60s British guys and everybody who's come along since that has dug into his music. I think everybody, a large percentage of those people are still alive and with us. And this kind of a story, this kind of a filling in of the gap in the story 
is absolutely essential telling. Well, and look at the perspective of how we know a lot of this blues history is from white enthusiasts right. who discovered the records kind of after they they lost popularity and they were more obscure and they got into the music because it's fantastic and started mm-hmm. to do the the research and try to track down some of the uh, the old the old guys and the old ladies and and uh, their cohorts and that sort of thing. So a lot of the blues history has been written from a white perspective, and you sure. don't have as much of this firsthand African American perspective. And and now you know our culture's in a place where we're finally starting to value that more. Now you take it with somebody like Robert Johnson, you know, who has uh, as we've touched on repeatedly has this this mythical status. Well, where did that myth come from? Can come from? And it came from people who didn't know it uh, and we're trying to piece it together. But, you know, Mrs. Anderson is is very much the opposite of that. And it's fascinating to me. One of my favorite moments uh, in in the book and in interviewing Mrs. Anderson was this image of, of her in the 1960s with her Ladies Home Journal magazine, uh, reading probably some little puff piece about the Rolling Stones, who are calling out their, their favorite musician of all time, Robert Johnson. And she's kind of <laughs> scratching her head and saying, that can't be my Robert Johnson. How would they know about him? You know, so there were these two worlds all along, right? Of, yeah. Uh, rock and rollers and and uh old music fans who really revered robert johnson and then there were the people that knew him that were not connected to to that that cultural awareness of robert johnson that's fascinating to me and you know when those two worlds met uh some very messed up things happened that's true are you talking about all of the uh, legal stuff and the fighting for ownership of robert johnson's music and all of that as far as yeah. the nasty stuff boy yeah. what an ugly ugly part of the story that is and what a vile part of the story i know ray's got a couple of questions about some of the people involved with that i want to know a little bit more about steve is it lavere lavere yeah lavere first off there's this other guy you were talking about, I guess it was Mac McCormick, who'd come in and started to kind of grift his way into the family about all stuff. I don't even think that it was Mrs. Anderson. I think it was her sister that was, right. they were all getting old and passing, and they kind of handed the, the, the reins to the legacy to her to fight for it. And what happened after that, it's it's the middle, later, later part of the book, is one of the most egregious examples that I have ever ever heard to the i never knew it was to the level that it was at it's one yeah. of the most egregious examples of theft of art no in american it. history and no and thing. for it to be robert johnson for it to be the million selling compilation of his recordings that was involved and the distribution of this money to someone who none in the family had ever heard of or knew as yeah. part of the deal that lavere would make with the world and get the courts to go along with yeah. I find it to be as an egregious of a story as you're going to find, and there is no justice for the for the family at this point. We have seen other cases settled amicably or otherwise, but we don't see any justice for Robert Johnson, a man who gave us so much. It's unbelievable. Uh, I, I have nothing to add to that. I think you summed it up perfectly. It's uh, it's that's that's all that it is. You know, it's of course the the two photographs that have been uh, in circulation for a long time: the cigarette photo and Robert in his pinstripe suit. Uh, you know, those were cherished uh, family heirlooms, and and people f- might think that they've heard that story before of Lavere ripping off the family, but you know, we had legal documents that have never been published from. We had Lavere's whole process from the '60s when he first learned about Robert Johnson. And developed this strategy, really, of gaining control of the copyrights to Robert Johnson's music. I don't. That think was what it was really all about, because of the, the value contract. of that between the publishing and the recording uh, mechanicals. So. By the time Levere had gotten interested, you see, Cream had come out with their cover of Crossroads. Right. I think the Stones had done Love in Vain. Yeah. Well, uh, right around that time, yeah. Uh, what? There was one other Zeppelin. What Zeppelin was it a Zeppelin cover? Yeah, yeah. Zeppelin Riverside.
and, and a lot of versions of Sweet Home Chicago, a lot of versions right. of other songs. The cumulative value of that was is ridiculous in in 1960s dollars. No doubt about it. Yeah, and so that's really what got Levere into it was, was getting those copyrights. But, you know, those photographs came from the family's collection. Levere got those and published them and got mm-hmm. them copyrighted under his own name. Mrs. Anderson, of course, you see on the cover of the book is this beautiful photograph of Robert Johnson that's just now being released for the first time. And Mrs. Anderson had that in her personal collection uh, since it was taken on Beale Street in 1936, if you can believe that. And wow. didn't want the thing to get out into the public because she didn't appreciate the way that that those those other family images, those other family photographs had been in her in her word abused stolen and abused and so i mean she's 94 right i mean she was 92 when we started this think about how close we were to not having that photograph of robert johnson to see and Mm -hmm. this version of him and it's all because of the way that her family uh, robert johnson's family had been treated you know both by the record collectors and then by the the court system right um and separately from levere you know you have claude johnson's family coming yep. forward to make its claim on the estate. That's such a weird situation because by the time Claude Johnson came into the picture for the estate, uh, Mrs. Anderson was the only one of, of Robert Johnson's, I would say, Memphis household, because they're not blood relatives, who was still alive. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. she's not his blood relative, even though she knew him and had protected these, the, these heirlooms that we now see in the book and had been very much a part of the legal battle with Levere over the copyrights in the first place. She had been there all along, but because she didn't have the blood relationship, the court didn't in any way recognize, you know, their real family relationship. And so the estate was awarded to Claude Johnson, who was recognized as Robert Johnson's son. That's just despicable. She got screwed there too, you know, and I, and I can't, you know, nobody here is in a position to say in any way whether Claude was really Robert's son. It's based on testimony, uh, no scientific evidence. But we know about Robert's Mar- Robert's Memphis family. That that's a hundred percent. You know, stone mm-hmm. cold pipe lock. They have been treated unfairly and continue to have been. Though I must say, I hope that this book turns things around. Well, having an altruistic part of what you're doing with it all, aside from a writer's natural curiosity, always makes it more special. And uh, Preston, I want to thank you as somebody who's wondered about the legends because the whole devil deal never made much sense to me either. And and I looked at the whole thing and to read this and to, and to read where he was and what he was doing and how he was catching the trains because the, the train had to slow down at the switch yeah. behind their house. They had a natural spot to get on and off when they were coming and going. And all the little things. Marcus and I were marveling about some of it. Oh, yeah. uh, the fact that he played at the friendly lunchroom there in town, yeah. you know. And, and he was just, a backdoor you know, man being snuck into white hotels to play for the rich part. white yes. people. You better come on in my kitchen. That type of stuff is insane because in those days in the South, he would have gotten his ass handed to him had he been caught by certain law officials for being snuck into those white hotels. But it felt like the, the people in Memphis were turning a blind eye to some of those things because Robert Johnson was their favorite. He's coming in the back door with his brother. Let him come in and play us some songs in our little party room we've got going on. Things like that. I think I, I think it was part of the fun of what Beale yeah. Street was. And, and, we, and we don't we can't imagine it because even as great as Beale Street is today, it's different. It is. Yeah, it's, it isn't what it was. And yeah, to have Robert Johnson be a, a part of Beale Street lore in this way is, is really valuable too. Mind blown. Every exactly. I mean, everybody <laughs> who loves the blues knows Beale Street, and everybody who loves the blues knows Robert Johnson. And now, you know, to put him there in in Handy Park, you know, picking his guitar, uh, <laughs> beautiful. So, you know, taking a nap in the Palace Theater, uh, getting his his baby sis ready to play the Amateur Night. You know, all of these images are are priceless. Oh, absolutely. And, and they're all in his book, folks. I'm telling you, it's that's it's not that big of a book, like you said pages. earlier. But you've only scratched the surface. We've in talking now. We've been talking for a while. We've only scratched the surface of what's all in this book. You've got to get it. It's Brother Robert, 
Growing Up with Robert Johnson, and it's by Anya C. Anderson. Mrs. Anderson, she called you Mr. Ladderbach. That's right. And you called her Mrs. Anderson the whole time. She's very he, formal. Very, that oh, was yeah. very nice. And he is Preston Ladderbach. He's been our guest here on the podcast. Um, lasting impressions of the Memphis Johnsons and Mrs. Anderson and the whole experience of intersecting with this man and his, his legacy for you? I mean, look, I, I'm like, I hope everybody who reads this book is. I was just totally floored because I didn't know that somebody who was so close to Robert was still around. Here we are 80 years, 80 plus years since he's gone. It seems almost impossible to have somebody come forward with this level, this depth of detail. And I will tell you this, you know, from a historian's perspective, everything that I could verify that Mrs. Anderson said checked out. And I was always impressed with the quality of, of her memory. If you, if you could talk to her today, you would hear that she is quite sharp. So when it came down to, well, Brother Robert played at this place in this particular year, you know, I'd go to the city directory and say, well, did this place exist in 1934? And sure enough, it did. She remembered addresses. She remembered the names. She remembered where people lived. And anything that, like I said, anything that could be verified was in the public record. And so to me, that gives extra value to the other things that she says, because she's she's not an exaggerator. I was more impressed uh, with with the, her restraint. She could have said anything about it. She could have said that she was at the crossroads and saw the devil. Right. Yeah, true. <laughs> to, to contradict her. But no, she was always don't do that while I'm drinking, please. But, but what I almost sprayed. Very, very <laughs> humble. And let me say this. If we're looking for ways to support African-American artists, uh, if you purchase this book, you will be benefiting Mrs. Annie C. Anderson. I, I did the job for a, a, a percentage of the advance. All the royalties go to her. Uh, so if, if you're contemplating how to get a hold of this book and whether or not you want to do it, maybe that'll be another reason to pull the trigger. It, you'll be supporting a, a gifted black artist and a wonderful person. Is there any uh, website that's got it on special or selling it uh, that you know of that we want to highlight? Any good local bookstore sites or anything like that, small bookstore sites? That's a really excellent question. Hmm. If you have a, a local independent book bookshop where you typically buy your books, uh, you can order it through them, I'm nearly sure. That's true. If, that's if they true. don't have it, they'll get it. And so I know Doylestown Books will do that for you anytime. So There you go. So I think that's probably the best way to do it. Other than that, all of the, the, you know, the usual suspects will have it, Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all that. Very cool. A couple more questions that I have are, when you went to Memphis to meet Ms. Anderson and you got to visit all these places, did you feel any of that old school energy while you were there? Oh, you know, it's it's it was terrifically moving because as much time as I've spent uh, in Memphis, I lived there for almost 10 years and have done have been researching Memphis history for about 15 years now. You know, it's such a small laid back town on the on the surface of it. You would just think that nothing ever happens there. But there, there's so much depth to the history and the culture there. And it's just so laid back and so understated, but being in, be, seeing the house where Robert Johnson, sister Carrie, Mrs. Anderson, uh, Mrs. Anderson's parents, uh, her father particularly, you know, used to, uh, well, was, was Robert's first guitar teacher, but used to cut Robert's hair there in the, in the, their apartment, but to actually see that building and to know that it had been there all these years that I didn't know about it. When I, I try to pride myself on being knowledgeable and, and a good researcher and all of that, and a good sleuth who loves this stuff. It's just amazing that this stuff can be hidden in plain sight. Like, like yeah. That. And it was so cool. You know, their, their family home was this little, little duplex built probably in the late twenties, but it's situated right on the bayou. And, you know, it's yeah. it's an unusual location for Memphis because there isn't a lot of that bayou that's that's still exposed. Most of it's been paved over and it's more or less the sewer system now. But, you know, for her to be able to say, yeah, that's where Brother Robert used to hang his feet over the, the bank of the bayou and pick his guitar and to see it and for it to be such a well, I mean, look, it's neglected and, and, and in total disrepair in right. a way that just sort of makes it seem that much more powerful. You know, it's secret, I guess, is what's so exciting about it. 
so few locations in his life were verifiable or yeah, quantifiable. I understand completely how that had affected you. And it's neat to hear how the experience of writing this book and researching it affected the writer too. No neat. doubt about it. Oh, Thanks it was, for sharing. It was, it was a blast. No, well, well, thank you guys for, for having me on and letting me talk at length about it. It really has been a pleasure. One of the many things I enjoyed about the book and reading in the book was food. I love food. So yeah. hearing <laughs> about all these, hearing about all this good food that they made and this barbecue sauce and stuff like yes. that, does Anya have any of those recipes and did she share any of them with you? Look at this guy. That is such a good question. Mrs. Hey, we're Anderson. barbecue guys. Mrs. Anderson has manufactured her family recipe barbecue sauce. What? And so she has uh, she's shared a lot of it with me. I have these great big jars of it still. It is so good. It is unlike any sauce that you have ever tasted before. And it is all based on those old ingredients that her mother and father <laughs> used to make the, the sauce for the cafe out of. You know, she has like these little name tags you know like like you would see at a, a a convention or something like that little sticker name tags that say hello my name is and then she'll put on their barbecue sauce you know yeah wow. <laughs> so that's, wow. like, that's how that's how she labeled but you know she manufactured and sold this for many years she's an organic gardener you know she has a big gardening plot up there where she lives and so she wants to get the sauce back out on the market so maybe you will see it there but marcus back to your question one of her many future book projects is going to be a cookbook she uh, wants to do uh, her family recipes and so gotta have will... things to do when you clear 90 i guess <laughs> that's what she, she is always looking keeps you going thing. always looking to the future yeah that that is that's, uh, awesome. that's how she does it uh, awesome. i would love to taste some of that food the barbecue sauce some of the other stuff that they made it just sounded so delicious when she would describe the families getting together and cooking together and eating and Growing up in an Italian Jewish family, we did a lot of that cooking together as well with the Italian food, the seven fishes dinner, making sauce from scratch, all of that stuff. So to hear about it from other cultures and some of the yummy food in other cultures is just remarkable. Food rocks. And it's a great way to unite people. And I love replicating barbecue sauces, so I want to taste. Yeah, we (laughs) want to taste. We're going to have to send an email to Daisy and see if uh, we can get Anya to send us some barbecue sauce. There you go. He is our guest, Preston Lauterbach. His book is Brother Robert, Growing Up with Robert Johnson, co-written with Robert's half-sister, Anya C. Anderson, Mrs. Anderson to you. That's right. And we want to thank you for your time, and we wish you all the best with this. Uh, And thank you, thank you, thank you for helping to restore part of Robert Johnson's lost legacy with your book. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. My pleasure, and thanks to you guys for giving me the opportunity to, to chat it up a little bit. Thank you very much for sharing. What's next for Preston? What are you writing next? Well, I'm working on a, a screenplay adaptation of, of my book, Beale Street Dynasty. Nice. Uh, so that's the, the story of the South's first black millionaire and, and the birth of uh, that iconic street. So, um, you know, hopefully something happens with it. I'm sure it will. All right. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. We'll catch you next time on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.